Hello, everybody, and welcome to another show, The Money Mitch Effect, a sports podcast. I am Mitch Michaels. This is another episode that I hope you enjoy catching up with Nina Pantic. It's the second time she's been on this show. Great conversation with her about tennis. She is a writer, editor, producer for Tennis.com and Tennis Magazine, and she also hosts the Tennis.com podcast with Arena Falcone. A lot to talk about with Nina, what's happened in the last year, the last 12 months of tennis on the pro ATP and WTA tours, Novak Djokovic's comeback, the women's game is pretty wide open right now, a lot of different women have won a lot of majors, and what's next for legends like Serena Williams, Rafael Nadal, and Roger Federer, and also how it's been going for Nina, her career, talking uh, about an interview with Rod Laver as well, a lot to talk about with Nina, she was very gracious with her time, that's up first. And then my old buddy Ryan Souls is coming on the show to talk about college football playoff. Did the committee get the four teams right? Urban Meyer retiring at Ohio State. The Wilder Fury fight, which is a little controversial in boxing. And then another NFL discussion where we talk about who's primed for a big stretch run in the National Football League. It's Nina Pantic and Ryan Souls on the Money Mitch Effect. Let's start the show. All right, now joining us on the Money Mitch Effect, now officially a reoccurring guest. It's been about eight, nine months since I talked to her last. Associate editor, Tennis.com, Tennis Magazine, and a podcast host now. It's Nina Pantic. Nina, thanks for coming back to the show. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me, Mitch. Well, it's always fun to talk tennis with anybody, especially someone as qualified as yourself. And I had to go back into the archives to, to precisely get a date on when we talked. It was during the beginning of Indian Wells. A lot's changed since then. I think I remember us talking about, well, it's Roger, it's Rafa. These are the two guys at the top of the sport. We didn't really know what the women's game was like. Wozniacki had won her first major. A lot's changed since that. And I think nothing nothing has changed more than the reemergence of Novak Djokovic. So as someone that's covered the sport, I know a lot of, a lot of tennis people like to get kind of antsy with when is someone going to come back? Are they finished? But Novak Djokovic's resurgence to me stole the show in 2018 it was something that I think a lot of us were waiting for and and still yet even a little surprised to see I find it kind of funny that when you look back at Indian Wells neither one of us really thought about Novak Djokovic and I'm pretty sure he lost first round and it was kind of painful so to see him go from outside the top 20 to number one is astonishing I think it would be even more impressive if he hadn't come off the years that Rafa and Roger had in 2017 because that really set the bar so high of course he finished number one so it's kind of Great, an astonishing year overall. I'm I'm not even surprised though. Like, are you surprised to see Novak back? I'm not. I think what was startling to me was just the fall itself. Maybe the rise back is what how quickly he just got it back. Like we talked, and then he lost to Tara Daniel, and then he lost in Miami in the first round to Benoit Pair, and he had a couple first round exits in clay. So at that point, you're thinking, is something wrong with this guy's head? We know the game is kind of still showing flashes, but. Then he just flipped the switch and was fine again. So I guess to answer your question, I'm a little—I was a little surprised that he just got it all back, seemingly at Wimbledon in that grass court run. His comeback was a bit more human, though. His because because he struggled, because it took him about six or so months to get really going, and because he kind of suffered. I kind of find it more relatable versus the Roger Rafa comebacks of winning instantly. This kind of seemed more like the Stan Wawrinka and the Andy Murray comebacks. Of course, at a different level because he is—he's currently the best, but. I also kind of see he set himself up so well now for 2019. I kind of find him most likely to retain number one for the next year, I would say. 
Yeah, we looked at that ranking or that race to number one, and even before Rafa's injuries and, and Rogers playing the light schedule, you saw he had no points to defend. And, and as he gets going, it's like who's who's going to stop this guy? Now he did lose to a couple young guys that we'll get to, but I, I was I'm with you. It was a human comeback. It was able to see sides of Djokovic that we hadn't really seen. But you get flashes of why he's the best, and and I go to the little things in sports. Like we know he's a shot maker, but his athleticism, his footwork, his ability to, to return with pace. Uh, it's after he beat after he won Wimbledon was one thing, but when he beat Roger in straight sense at Cincinnati, that's when I think everybody was like, okay, this guy is back to being pretty much the best in the world. He followed that up with the U.S. Open, but Wimbledon got him going. I just think he went on a tear, like he has done in the last couple hard court seasons. I know winning Wimbledon and the U.S. Open was more important to him and, of course, getting past that hurdle of, of Grand Slam number 13. But but winning Cincinnati, to me, was the biggest achievement I've seen from him in the past past few years just because it's been such a long time coming. I was, like, relieved to see him finally win that and get all the Masters title and have that spot in history because I think he's kind of still going for greatest of all time, and I think he still has a chance to, to catch even maybe Federer's 20. I don't know if that's maybe pushing. My prediction skills are usually very off, but I kind of think he probably feels more motivated than ever versus not worn out, not tired, not injured, you know, looking ahead positively. I kind of expect a lot from him. The way he plays, his, his age, he's only 31. I mean, we, we keep forgetting just that he isn't as advanced as some of these other guys. If he avoids major injury, which I know he had the arm issue and, and – and it was kind of a, a one-off deal, but there's no reason to think he can't be winning majors for the next six years. And, yeah, I, w- I agree. I would say he's more likely to pass Roger than probably Rafa. I don't know if that's too much of a hot take. I don't know if it is. I kind of agree with you. As much as everyone would love to see Rafa continue playing for another five years, it's just not the same chance, I think, because of how physical his game is. You know, Federer's 37, and you're like, oh, Rafa's a few years younger. But, like, really, in in the way that they play tennis, I think Rafa's more worn out and has been playing longer, more court time, longer points than anyone else on tour, basically. So I kind of feel like there's a bit of a difference there. Just because of the age is different doesn't mean that they're going to last as long. I think Novak being 31, it's funny. We look at that, and we're like, oh, that's just so young now. It's crazy. <laughs> it really is. And as far as Nadal goes, just to add something, he played of all the hardcore tournaments he played. I don't think he finished most of them. I think the he only, pulled out yeah. with injuries and a lot. The only one he finished was the one he won. Um, I think he won. Yeah, Canada, right? Yeah, yeah. There we go. Yeah, he played. I think only under a couple hardcore tournaments. Only finished the one that he won, and then he played everything else on clay. I mean, not the worst choice, really. I, everyone's been thinking maybe he should skip the grass court season, but that's silly because it's only so short. So why not skip some of the hard court season? It's that, that's the part of it with Nadal. We all love watching him play and how hard he plays, but the injuries. I mean, he finished this year injured. I just don't know how long he could play and, and really at the level he plays. Because unlike Roger, when I watch Nadal play, I think he has to play this version. Uh, this version of Nadal has to play this all-out go for every point to be Rafael Nadal, if that makes any sense. It makes perfect sense. And, I mean, Novak's not that different in a sense that he also is kind of grinding and really physical and, and you know, doing all these athletic moves on the court. But it just doesn't seem to be the same level of exertion and, and physical torture. I mean, Nadal is suffering. He said it himself. I don't think that's offensive. He's, he's suffering versus, you know, and I feel like Novak is a bit in his element more. I, I don't know if that makes sense either, though. Yeah, it does. I, I I do believe that with Nadal, if he's in perfect tip-top shape, 
he's at the very least probably the toughest out of a Grand Slam because he's not going to give you anything. And he's, I've said this before, he's probably the best at winning matches he's not supposed to win. Where if he's getting outplayed, he still finds a way to win the big points and, and come up big. With Djokovic, I feel like he is just going to get everything. He's going to be the best defender in the history of tennis pretty much every time he's playing. So you have to hit that extra shot every time. That Wimbledon match was incredible. It was a blast from the past to see both guys at tip-top shape playing each other. We'll see where it goes, but it's two years now, Nina, where Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer have won all the Grand Slams. So I guess to segue in, I mean, I, it can't last forever. We, we keep saying that, but here we are again another year, and a younger player hasn't broken through. But Paris and the year-end championships, Kachanov and Zverev win Masters, and they go through the best to do it. Are we finally going to get to that point in 2019 where somebody breaks through on the Grand Slam level? Every single year we sit around in the offseason thinking this next year is going to be Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, maybe, maybe not Djokovic, but, but it's going to be towards the end. Someone's going to retire. Someone's going to stop. Someone's going to completely pack away the bags for six months again. And instead we're sitting here having them at number one, two, and three. I mean, I, I, it's insane. I recently read a story saying the reason was because the younger players weren't as good and that's why they weren't breaking through. But I don't agree with that. I think the issue is that these three guys are so superior and so exceptional. That's kind of my take versus, you know, the young guys aren't great. Um, do I see Zverev winning a Grand Slam next year? I don't think so, but I think he'll finally at least make a semifinal because the ATP Finals was a huge hurdle for him, beating all these top players and holding that trophy and being like, I'm the best in the world. You know, I've beaten better. I've beaten Djokovic. Like, I can do this. But that is a very shorter tournament, right? It's not two weeks. He played only a couple of matches. I think he lost in the round robin. I mean, it, it, it's not... It's not realistically the same. You can't relate that to a Grand Slam. That's the only issue I see. So I, I don't know if there ever win one in 2019, 2020 maybe, 2021. I mean, he's 21 years old, right? And then Kachanov was so impressive against Nadal at the U.S. Open, but he didn't win, right? So you got to win those matches if you're going to win a slam, uh, unless you want to sit around and wait until Nadal and Federer actually do stop playing. Right. We don't know when that's going to be. Uh, as far as Verev goes, I, I would – look, he's done everything that he – that he can do except win a Grand Slam. And not only win a Grand Slam, he's only made one quarterfinal. I think that's the part that's kind of jolting. The fact that this year especially, he had three Grand Slam losses that were just abysmal, where he went out getting bageled in two different sets in Australia and Wimbledon, and then in the U.S. Open was the same thing. He collapsed. And these aren't collapses to Federer and Nadal. These are early round when you're a top seed and you have a favorable draw. I think that Zverev, I mean, everyone knows how good his game is. I don't know if it's the stamina of best of five sets, if it's a mental thing with him, but we're just waiting for him to break through because we know he has the talent. I'll only add this, though. There's no lock that he's going to be the first young guy to win that Grand Slam because I'm also impressed with not only Kachanov, but Borna Korich, how he came along at the end of the year. As far as the top guys dominating the sports, they're the three probably greatest players ever, so we can't judge them by the same curve of, of history. But there are about, I think, five guys under 23 in the top 20. I feel like the youth movement is coming. It's just a matter of who, if anybody, can break through arguably the best players ever. So I, I'm, I think it might happen in 2019. I wouldn't say probable, but it is possible someone finally breaks through. I see one of those guys in a semi or a final for sure. It's just a matter of winning the whole thing that I just don't picture yet. Chorich has made some huge strides. I mean, he's now he – he really reminds me of Novak Djokovic – in the way that he plays and the way that he acts. I mean, everything kind of about him kind of it fits that mold, which is a great mold to be in. Um, but but I, I don't know. I mean, I kind of 
And you also kind of can't forget about not really the Dimitrovs and the Shikoris, but there are some other players sitting around waiting for their chance. And I, and I right. kind of think, you know, maybe an Anderson or even Chilich might be more likely at this point than than Zverev or Kachanov. But I I see I see the point you're making, and I, I see them coming up, and I don't see them not winning Grand Slams. Definitely I do. It's just Zverev either gets in his head or can't handle the five-set matches or a combination of everything. But now he's got Ivan Lendl, which maybe will make a big difference because, I mean, who better to have in your box? Right, and team was another one, too, who's only 25. He's been to a major final, and keeps running into the Rafas and the Djokovic's. So it, it'll be interesting to see as I still chat here with Nina Pantic on the Money Mitch effect. I do want to also add one more thing on the ATP. You mentioned Anderson. Isner had a career year. The average age of the top 10 right now, Nina, is about 29, which is unheard of in any tennis era ever. This is as old as the top 10 as the greatest players have been. So I'll ask you, why do you think that is? Why do you think the veterans are still dominating? And it's not just the Nadal and Federer and Djokovic's, but the entire tour is seemingly dominated by veterans. Yeah, again, I don't see it as a bad reflection in the game. I don't see it as, oh, the young players aren't so great. That's why the old players are hanging around. I see it as there's an exceptional group of players, some of which use college tennis, which, of course, extended their career because they didn't get going until in their 20s. I think the physicality of the game has changed. The rackets have changed. The... Everything about the court surfaces. I mean, everything just kind of seems to have all like a perfect storm of things have collided to make the the game be able to be played at a high level for longer. Uh, also, we can't forget one little thing. The money is so good. Why would you want to stop when you're 30 if you can keep going for five more years and be a multimillionaire and have yourself set for life? Well, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, that wasn't the case. You had less of that motivation. And I think they're managing their schedules better. They have better teams. They have physical therapists. They have... You know, they have everyone they could possibly need with them. And, you know, if you're doing well in your top 50, it just seems like you have more incentive than ever to just kind of keep grinding. And Kevin Anderson and John Isner, I mean, John Isner has been the top 20 for the past decade. I mean, this guy's been so consistent. But Kevin is a guy, I think, who was like, you know what? Like, this is what I'm good at. This is what I want to be great at. And I'm going to keep going. I'm not embarrassed to keep going. And he's waited and he's got in spite of his time, put in the work. And he's honestly overachieving, in my opinion. Yeah, well, that, that's absolutely, I think, the case. And, and you talk about managing your schedule. Anderson honed his craft, I think, in a lot of these lower-level tournaments where he put the time in. He, he got to be a solid clay player, which I didn't even think was a lot of people thought was possible early. And he just mastered coming up with those big serves and big points and, and really improving his ground strokes. I, I agree with that. I do think the money is a big factor in it. And also, if you look at... If you look at getting to the top 10, you have extra amenities, you have extra services at your disposal. A lot of these players are taking advantage of it, getting their diet in order, getting the training side of things. Uh, 30, 40 years ago, weightlifting for a tennis player and, and cardio training was unheard of. I think Macro said he just liked to play doubles and that was enough practice for him. But now you're seeing athletes, like a lot of athletes in other sports, tennis players are treating, are treating it as a profession and, and getting their bodies in shape as well. I completely agree. It's just, it's so fascinating to see. And, and I do think, you know, I'll, I'll end this discussion with this. Rafa Nadal, two years ago, became the first, became, I think, the third player ever to win a Grand Slam in his, 19, in his teens, 20s, and 30s. I really can't see that happening in the near future at all. I don't see it happening either. I mean, there's some, like, like Zvera, for example, was considered a prodigy. I mean, he, he was the youngest player to do all sorts of things, but winning a Grand Slam when you're a teenager is, is it's a tall task. I mean, I just, especially now with all these players that are older that'll just be there to block you. I, I, don't, I don't see that happening.
Yeah, Zverev already two years removed from that. So it'll be fascinating to watch. But the men's tour is in good shape. Is I do want to get your thoughts, Nina, on the women's side, which is kind of completely opposite from a stranglehold at the top. It's wide open. We've had seven of the or the last eight winners, I should say, of Grand Slams on the on the women's tour have been different women. We had three first-time winners last year in 2018. So I guess to start with this discussion, I'll, I'll ask you this. Are these women that have broken through for the first time, are they here to stay? Or are we going to have more parity as the years go along with Serena Williams getting older and the game kind of opening up a bit? I think there's a lot of room in the top 20 for any one of those players to win a Grand Slam. I don't see anyone dominating um, for the next few years. I think it's going to keep going as it's been. But looking back at, you know, I, I can't help but go back to our last talk in, in March, right ahead of Indian Wells. And, not, I mean, we didn't see Novak Djokovic coming. We definitely didn't see Naomi Osaka coming. So I, I, I see her maybe winning, like, one or two slams across the next few years regularly. I see that as a possibility. But um, I just kind of think it'll keep going like this. There's so many good, talented players, like, in the top 30 even. You're looking at Kasatkina. You're looking at Burtons. I mean... All these players are just so capable of going and winning big, big matches. So I, I, I think it'll keep being this kind of roller coaster, and I kind of like it. Yeah, there's definitely a mix of youth and veteran presence as well. It wasn't just the young guns that broke through. Wozniacki got her first help, finally breaking through, Kerber winning again. But I agree. I would say I would be shocked if Osaka's not around for a while. And she's someone that... I won't say that I called her winning a Grand Slam so early, but if you watched her game coming up, you saw a lot of the talented skills that came to fruition in the U.S. Open run. I do think there'll be a lot of parity, but I think I think eventually it, it will we'll get to a point where we'll have a few players that win multiple Grand Slams, but I just don't know when exactly that will be. It's a testament to the greatness of the players that have you know been dominant beforehand, but I also think the flip side of that, Nina, is it's really hard to follow up winning a Grand Slam, that life-altering experience, by winning another one. I mean, winning two Grand Slams is as tall a task as there is in tennis. Well, the thing working for Osaka is that she won the U.S. Open, so she got a good four or five months of, of letting it sink in before the Australian Open. And then she managed to win and make the, well, she made the finals of Tokyo, which is a massive tournament right after the U.S. Open, in her native country. And she handled that so well. I mean, she made the finals. She beat some great players. She didn't let it, her... She didn't just drop out the next tournament. She really just kind of kept going and kept her composure, especially after not only was it life-changing to win the Grand Slam, but it was so controversial and crazy, and she just handled it all, I think, with maturity beyond her years. And she's got a good team and her parents and her coach, and everyone is there to support her. And I think if she can, you know, maybe tap into that same level, and, you know, as long as she also stays healthy, you got to be careful. You know, she's so young. You never know what's going to happen. But I, I see her being a dominant force in the top five. Um for years to come. Yeah, I would agree with that. I just think if, if you look at when like Sloane Stevens won her first tournament or even further back, Garbini Muguruza, it took a while for them to really get back to competing at the top. And I don't know if that's just the fatigue of winning a Grand Slam and having to go back to the practice well and, and continue to work on their craft. But it's tough. And as you said, there's it's like a lottery ticket. There's 20 to 25 players in, this, in these rankings that can compete for a Grand Slam. And a lot of them haven't won. And and some of those names, like I keep waiting for someone, you know, like Madison Keys to finally break through because her game has a lot to offer. But for whatever reason, she just hasn't been able to break through when it's mattered most. Yeah, Keys, Keys is an interesting one. I see her with so much potential. I mean, such a big game and it, someone who's, who's made a Grand Slam final and has been so close. And I think 
the fact that she's tasted it is a big thing because she knows what she needs to do to get back in a final or a semifinal. And she's clearly capable. She's done it multiple times. So I, I, I think that's just someone who maybe needs a little more time to, to settle in to being so good. But with her, especially, again, if she stays healthy, I mean, that's just massive. She made the semis of, of Zuhai and then had to pull out. I mean, that's that's miserable. So, so you know, it, with her, it's managing her schedule. But that's someone, like you're saying, anyone in the top 30 really could win a slam. But what I find so unique about Osaka is that the players you mentioned, Wozniacki, Muguruza, even Kerber maybe, um, everyone kind of would win, a, or maybe even Halep a little bit. You win a slam and you kind of dip. You kind of... You celebrate a lot, which is great. You should celebrate. And then you kind of lose the next couple of matches. Sloan and Stevens lost like nine. And that's totally normal. But Osaka didn't. And I think that's really special. Yeah, we'll see the Australian Open because I'm expecting big things from her right at the start of 2019. And another player, too, just to quickly mention, Sabalenka is only 20. She's somebody that looks like she could be a force going forward as well. Really came on uh, at the end of the year. But you know, on the flip side of that, We'll talk about Serena Williams because she's 37 years old and she made two major finals last year. Didn't win any of them. The U.S. Open, as we as we alluded to, ended in controversial fashion. But as it stands, she's going to be 38 this next year. She's still near the top of the tem- tennis world. But do you think that there is another major title in her in her arsenal? Because it's really fascinating to me. I don't know if we can say for the first time in a while that she's for sure going to win another major. She's gotten close, but I don't know if that's going to absolutely happen. She is 38 years old and doesn't give me the indication that she wants to play for a longer period of time. I don't know. I think I disagree. I do see her winning another one because if she wasn't going to and she didn't believe in it, she wouldn't be playing. She would have just stopped right now and got had another kid and been perfectly happy with that. She could easily quit anytime she wants and be perfectly content, I think. But she's not because she's Serena Williams. Like, if, if you had 23 Grand Slams and you're 37 years old and you have a one-year-old, you'd be like, you know what, this is good enough for me. Right. But she's different. She wants that number 24, and I think she even wants number 25 badly enough to keep going. Will she, uh, realistically, if it doesn't happen next year, will she hang around for one more year? I mean, you got to think about Tokyo 2020. How much does she care about that? We know Venus does. But, you know, it, it, it's... It gets a little tricky, but I think nothing can be... You can't predict anything with Serena. You can't... You have no idea what's going to happen. Other than if she's in a Grand Slam, she's a contender for the title. If she shows up in yeah. Australia, she could win it. That That's kind of the way I see it. Absol- I mean, absolutely don't want to discount the fact that she has a chance to win every tournament she's in. I guess another counter to that, though, would be at the 16th ranking spot and given her schedule and how she's earned the right to and she is managing it. I don't know what it's going to take for her to get back to a top four or five ranking and get that preferential seed. I do think that the competition has gotten better. It's a deeper WTA tour than maybe four or five years ago even. So I think as, as her current ranking suggests, it's going to take some deep runs right out of the gate to really get, you know, avoid some of these tough draws. I do think at Wimbledon she did have a favorable matchup. At the U.S. Open she beat a lot of good players, but I think that, that kind of works part hand in hand. I do think she has a chance to win every tournament. I guess what I'm saying is it's just not as much of a lock as it's been at any other point of her career. Oh, definitely not. Definitely not a lock, especially because she lost those finals, the Grand Slams, and that was pretty unexpected. Had she lost in the fourth round, I think it wouldn't have been as 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 shocking or as, I don't know, I just feel, it felt so wrong to see her lose in a final. I don't think she really loses a lot of Grand Slam finals unless it was to her sister. And, you know, both of them she lost in straight sets, so I don't know. It just seemed a little bit deflated kind of to end slams that way so I, I think that's kind of a factor because she was so close but then she I think she wouldn't be training she wouldn't be practicing she wouldn't be entering tournaments she's playing the Hopman Cup I mean 
I don't know. You gotta you gotta always kind of expect a lot from her. But maybe if next year goes poorly, maybe that's it. Right. I think your time frame is pretty accurate, though. Probably two more years. That seems realistic. Yeah. So eight more Grand Slam tries. I think I think one is probably. I would probably say one is what I would think. One more Grand Slam win. I wouldn't go two, but I think she can win one more. I think she will win one more. I'll say, but okay. that, that's where I'd be at. I mean, it's, it seems a good it seems a good bet. <laughs> we'll see what happens. It's going to be fun. It's going to be interesting to see where where this tour goes if some of these young players for the first time ever have confidence with Serena Williams on the court. But Nina, I want to kind of shift gears and talk a little bit about kind of what you've been doing because. That's the last time we talked. You started a podcast, a tennis.com podcast with Arena Falcone. And you talk about life on the tour and, and maybe life on the tour, not just with the top players, some of the some of the grinding factors of, of working your way up on the tennis tour and, and breaking down issues that I think a lot of casual fans don't really know and don't really pay attention to. So what's that been like starting a podcast and kind of pulling the curtain back a little bit about life as a tennis player? It's been about six months, and I'll be honest, a few years ago when uh, people mentioned podcasts and me hosting one, I didn't think it was a great idea. But as I've kind of developed and gotten a little bit more mature, I, uh, I jumped right into it, and Tennis.com had a podcast before. It's been around for like a good, I don't know, I'd say like eight years, but really sporadically and really kind of all over the place with different hosts and, and obviously great editors at Tennis Magazine, Tennis.com. But then to kind of jump in and take over a weekly podcast was really intimidating, but then I had the idea of having Irina Falcone, like one of my best friends in life, not just in tennis, um, join me. And it worked out because she was down. I was surprised. I wasn't surprised, but I mean, you're asking someone to be in a podcast every week. It's kind of a commitment. So I was, I was really, really, really thrilled. And that took off so much pressure off me of chasing around guests because worst case scenario, it's just me and her talking about certain topics. So that really helped. Uh, having, and having your friend working with you was actually kind of awesome. So that's, that's been a huge factor. And surprisingly, you know, uh, reaching out to guests and people actually reaching out to us has been really fun. You know, uh, when you when you expand your horizons to open up to you know members of the USTA, people that worked in college, people ranked outside the top hundred, coaches who are just coming up. I mean, you expand your horizons and you talk to people that are all different different parts of the sport. It makes it a lot easier than like, oh, I'm going to chase top twenty players. I mean, that's not going to happen. Do you find yourself? I guess becoming more and more entrenched as a podcast host, as a producer. I ask that because you're you're somebody that's done a lot of different things and at a point in your life where maybe maybe you are a little bit in that transition mode from writing to, to moving to this digital media side. Do you think that's becoming more and more a part of what you're doing? Well, I didn't really have much choice. I think the way that things have gone in media, you kind of have to jump into audio and video where you're going to get lost and shoved aside. Um, as much as I love writing, writing is my, my background and my passion. And, you know, print magazines and everything was kind of what I was obsessed with as a kid and newspapers. I mean, that was my first job. But you got to be realistic and, and people don't want to consume content just reading anymore. So jumping into the podcast was a big step because you kind of get that experience of, of a different kind of a format versus just you and yourself and interviewing players and, and just doing notes and stuff and, and writing. So I, I think it's a massive step, you know, maybe not full on career podcasting. I don't know if that's even a thing, but it, you know, it, it, it's, and it's so in, on trend, right? Like I'm not really a, a tr on trend person, but to, to be doing podcasts when podcasts are really popular is really fun. Absolutely. Uh, and, and I think also the, as I mentioned, kind of the content of your show, it's a, it's a very interesting perspective, a lot of different guests, you know, and not just with Arena, but with 
some of the guests you've had, Danielle Lau was one that I heard, and, and you're really getting to, to see the perspective of a, of a tour player that's not necessarily near the top. I just can't think of another sport where you're the you're top 100 in the world, 100, 150, the best at what you do, and yet it's a grind to kind of stay active professionally. It's such a grind, and it's, it's such a lost part of our media coverage of the sport. We're really focused on the top 100, top 50, and we kind of forget that there's a 1,000 players competing and, and considering themselves professionals and committed fully to this career, this crazy career. And I think it's only fair to give them a chance to tell their story. I mean, maybe it'll help them in some way, I don't know, like get more get more eyes on them, get more contracts, get more coaches to notice them or whatever. I mean, it's, it's it kind of goes both ways. Like I get to learn a little bit about their stories and their life. Irina and I get to talk to people that we can relate to. And it, it's kind of like a rewarding yet really fun and interesting and challenging thing to do is trying to figure out what to talk about, but also keep things different each week. Because a lot of times you've talked to someone ranked 100 every week, you're going to get kind of similar stories. But it hasn't been the case. I find a lot of variety in these people. And it's something that's kind of lacking easily. Yeah. And no. and the cool thing, I mean, you're in a podcast. The cool thing with podcasts is whoever you're interviewing, there's not going to be any gross editing. There's not going to be any like pull quotes. You're kind of just conversating with this person and it's going to be raw and it's going to be, um, I mean, not unedited completely, but it'll be what they said, the way they said it, not anything being twisted or being, you know, summarized or something, which I think is a different kind of journalism. Right. You get that full context, but you also get those raw emotions to a point where it's just a it's just a free-flowing conversation and you get to have players and have perspectives open up that you wouldn't necessarily get well Nina before I let you go I gotta ask you another thing not not on that side but very different interview you got to do what was it like chatting with Rod Laver oh yeah people ask about that one a lot that that was so insane because I've never met him before, but I've seen him at different events. I've been to the Australian Open. And just to, to walk up to him and introduce yourself is a little bit surreal. But he really is just a regular guy. And the way that we were trying to interview him was a labor cup. So he was in his element in the sense that he was the man of the hour, but he was also being pushed around in a million different directions. So it was challenging because you don't want to, I don't know, waste his time, but you also want to get a good 10, 15 minutes at least to make this worthy. And he was so nice. And like the funniest part of that situation was we were in a, the Tennis Channel studios, like a really tiny room off the press room. And the plan was to use the green room. But Roger Federer came in for his interview with Tennis Channel. So then I had to move to like a side room. And I was like, I'm sorry, Rod, but Roger just booted you out of the room. And he, I mean, obviously he didn't care. What does it matter to him? But I'm like, this is actually pretty funny. <laughs> sorry he just pushed you he just broke another one of your records sorry about that that's pretty funny it was good, that's good. Yeah. no but i i mean i'd heard that it's just it's that perspective that laver just seems like he's a normal guy and you don't really find anybody that has a bad thing to say about him at all so i understand being at, at that tournament where it's basically a tribute to him as it should be but it's cool that he was able to give you time and and kind of be nice and just chat about things. You can tell that's a guy that dedicated his life to tennis and is finally with that tournament getting a uh, the recognition that he deserves. Well, the hardest part was figuring out questions to ask him that he hasn't been asked 10 times that day, honestly. like It's the same as any interview. Like At the end of the day, no matter who's in front of you, we've had Andy Roddick, who also is pretty intimidating. 
Mark Philippoussis. I mean, these are all players or like legends of the game, but you, you just kind of have to find ways to ask questions that they haven't heard that day. But with Rod, it was almost impossible because he'd been on doing interviews all day. So that was also another thing. It's, it's just another another person you're trying to connect with and get them to, to open up and talk candidly. And it's kind of the same with every person, no matter what, what their background is. Well, Nina Pantic, this was a blast. Thank you for uh, coming on today's show. And, and before I let you go, last question, 2019 tennis season, what do you think the, the top storylines are going to be on each tour? Just kind of calling your shot early in what's going to happen next year. I think I see Novak winning two slams, staying number one. I see Osaka winning one more, and I see Serena winning one as well. That's that's my... Wimbledon? And then for Wimbledon, I think I want to go with Federer, but it's hard to tell because who knows what he's going to do health-wise and taking time off. I think he'll still prioritize Wimbledon, so maybe Federer for Wimbledon. Yeah, I, I mean, that's the other thing we didn't really talk on, but Federer is in that same Serena timeline. I don't know how much longer this is going to go. I'm just trying to, as a fan of his, cherish every day. <laughs> cherish I every mean, day. yeah. It helps that he's top three, so at least he's got that. Yeah, he definitely has that. I'll say that uh, Djokovic winning two is a safe bet. I don't want to. I don't want to go out on too much of a limb. We'll we'll see what happens at the French Open because I think Nadal will still win, but it might finally be time for somebody else to start trying to break through. I just I, mean, I don't know what yeah. his health is going to be like. And uh, on the young side, I mentioned it. I th I think uh, I'll say Sabalenka gets a major next year. She'll be Ooh. the next up in terms. Yeah, I, that's a good choice. I think she's coming through. I think Osaka is going to be there. Serena, as we know, uh, and and who knows? We'll probably there'll be a there'll be a, another first time, probably another two first time major winners on the WTA tour. Because why not? I, I I definitely could agree with you on that one. Sabalenka is a great choice. Hey Nina, thanks again for coming on the show. Appreciate you. You're welcome anytime, and uh, good luck with everything into the new year. Thanks, Mitch. This has been great. Huge thanks again to Nina Pantic for appearing on the show. Hope to chat with her again soon. And best of luck to her with everything that she's got going on. I know she's got a full plate, but is the life in tennis. And tennis, we're in the offseason right now. It's only one month. And then we start up again in January with the Australian Open and, and those tournaments. So thanks again to Nina, one of the best in tennis, and uh, appreciate her coming on. All right, now it is time to talk to Ryan Souls, my old buddy from my college days. We're going to talk... Everything football, pro and college, the playoff committee, the college football playoff is set. We debate that a little bit, talk Urban Meyer, talk NFL Sunday, who's making some runs at the playoff, and Fury, Wilder, a lot in there. We're all boxing heads as well. Ryan Soul's up next here now on the Money Mitch Effect. All right, now on the Money Mitch Effect, a lot to talk about in this December sports season ryan souls back on the show ryan thanks for coming back on what's going on man happy to be here on this uh cold december day it's not cold for you but I'm here in chicago it's pretty cold yeah i'm not even gonna bring up the temperature just the, <laughs> not but uh where i'm at but ryan before we get to the nfl some other things in sports to talk about and mm -hmm. number one being the college football playoff the final, uh, final four teams were set on Sunday as we record this on Tuesday night with it being Alabama 1, no surprise there, Clemson 2, Notre Dame 3. They were all undefeated, and then Oklahoma gets the fourth spot with Georgia 5th with two losses and Ohio State 6th being 
the first two teams left out. Ryan, I'll, uh, I'll ask you the cliche question. Do you think in your mind the committee got it right? And, and by got it right, I mean that the four teams that deserve to be there are in it. Maybe not necessarily the four best teams. And I'm glad you make that distinction. Yeah, I think in terms of most deserving, yeah, I do think the committee got it right. I think you, you have to to honor the guys who win their championship in the Power Five Conference, and then you have to also just, no disrespect to your Buckeyes, bro, but take into account that loss to Purdue. And I think, you know, Ohio, Ohio State might have, you know, deserved – to be in over Oklahoma on a on a basis of who would give Alabama a better game, but I think in terms of deserving and how this works, Oklahoma should be there, and I think they got it right. Yeah, and and I agree. As I'll get the Ohio State stuff out of the way first. I don't think they deserve to be in the top four. It's not just that Purdue loss; it's also just some sluggish play down the stretch defensively. They kind of faltered. Maryland should have beat them. Even teams like Nebraska and Minnesota were putting up points. They didn't do enough this year, the Michigan win notwithstanding, to mm-hmm. impress the committee. So I understand that. I'm not I'm not going to be an apologist to that. And I also do think that if we were putting the four best teams in there, if you ask anybody in the country who follows college football who the four best teams are, Georgia would be on the list. Georgia would be – yeah, they would be on the list. But I think, yeah. you know, it just there, – there's so many. And I, I usually lean toward – who who are the best four teams, but we just reward the team that just loses its conference championship. So it just completely devalues the conference championship. So if we're just going to say it's an extension of the regular season and the reason why it's called what it's called is so somebody can slap a logo on and it makes some money, you know, that's one thing. But if we're calling it the beginning of the postseason, then it's got to mean something a little more than the regular season. And if you lose, you know, then maybe that's, your elimination ticket. Right, and and that's what, I, what I'm getting to is that Georgia had their chances. They lost games. Results have to matter in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. And it's not – if they were undefeated and they lost this game, especially the way they lost it, they're still in the playoff. It's the fact that they lost that LSU game by 20, 30, you know, 20-plus points. I mean, I know LSU is a good team, but they have yeah, two yeah. losses. And to be honest, had LSU even – let's just say LSU – Alabama, notwithstanding, ran the table. So they got two losses. I don't think that helps Georgia either. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. And, and I don't look, I think Bama might not punt in that Oklahoma game. Oh, <laughs> no. uh, but uh, somebody said choose their score. <laughs> they can name a score and just go out there and hit it if they want. But the thing about Oklahoma is they did avenge their loss to Texas. That obviously helps. And they won their conference championship with one loss to a team that's in a New Year's Six Bowl. So I, I get I get why that's the case. I understand it. And and to pull it full circle, I mean, if there's another criticism, I mean, I think Notre Dame was a team that we're still not quite sure how good they are. No fault to them. They went undefeated. They don't play in a conference, so they didn't have that last game to really showcase anything. But I don't know if their schedule, depending on how the, some of the teams they played held up, <coughs> USC wasn't that good. Um, it, it was, you know, Stanford was, wasn't that strong as well. Michigan faltered down the stretch. We'll see. I mean, that's a team that they needed to go undefeated too. So maybe in a perfect world where there's a Clemson team with a loss, Notre Dame loses a game. You don't have Oklahoma getting there. Georgia gets in, but the way things set up, I don't think how you could put Georgia in over the teams in front of them. 
No, I don't think you could either. I think it. I think it worked out exactly how I needed to. We'll see. I mean, I just want to get your thoughts on that. I, I and I'm I'm a fan of the fourteen playoff. I know we've debated that before. I think it makes regular season games count. Georgia had chances to win. They utterly blew that game. I mean, we were texting when it was going on. They had their chances. They get beat by another Alabama backup quarterback, and they call the single dumbest fake I've ever seen, probably in a football game. Yeah, that, I mean, what was it? Fourth and. I can't even remember what you know, it was. That that was the yeah, dumbest thing I've fourth, ever seen. It's fourth and maybe I think it was like seven or eight. Might have been a little yeah, longer. That was the stupidest. Yeah. You have Fields is the backup quarterback who gets in the game. He's not up back in any situation. So right. what would, even if you have no idea of fakes coming, anybody with a brain on that special teams unit, you call timeout immediately. <laughs> but everybody knows. Okay, something's up here. Let's Stop. just let's just bear down a little bit. And yeah, I mean right. that's. That was just crazy, um, but props to Jalen Hurts. So great story for him getting his moment, getting his redemption. And mm-hmm. yeah, Alabama is such a juggernaut. But the other story, Ryan, today that came out in college football. What do you think about Urban Meyer retiring at uh, the only age, only age of fifty four, but saying he's going to retire and step down on January second with Ryan Day taking over the Buckeyes after the Rose Bowl? You know, it's tough, kind of. <clears throat> excuse me, to talk about it just because. You have everything in the wake of this whole Zach Smith issue, and I think we wouldn't even need to bring his name up if we didn't see that press conference from Urban Meyer. So I feel like it's only fair to mention that before saying that if he if he never coaches another football game, he'll go down as the, the second greatest coach of this generation. And I think the sad part about it is if this whole health thing isn't a smokescreen, you know, coaching just takes so much emotion and passion. And to see that that could be the enemy of the good here, you know, is is just really unfortunate. So, you know, if it's not a smokescreen, and, and I hate just even talking about that in regards to someone's health, but I think it's only fair just, and he got up and lied in front of the national media. So I think... Looking at everything, I hope he's just remembered as a great football coach, but I can understand the legacy having a little tank to it. And if he, if this is a thing like it's, it was a Florida situation where a year and a half later we see him back coaching, I wouldn't be surprised either. So I don't know. I, I want to, I really want to think good things are about Urban Meyer. And I think overall I do, but I can see people out there not having the greatest opinion just really over the last year. And, and, I, and I understand. Right, that Ohio State run that he's had is the greatest run in school history. I, it I think is. You can't really argue. Yeah. I think he, he lost like nine games over the course of his seven years. Just uh-huh. an, astounding, an astounding total. And yeah, I mean, we talked about it when it happened. He lied at the Big, Tw- Big Ten press conference to start the mm-hmm. year. If that doesn't happen, the scandal doesn't even really probably come to light in the manner that it does. But Exactly. I'm with you. I mean, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. I may be, and I'm trying to to do it in the most fair way possible, but it's clear to see at the end of the year, he looked terrible on the sideline. So, and I believe the fact that there are some health issues, whether or not they're as serious as to be believed. Yeah, coaching's a rough profession. I mean, 54, but if you put the years he put in, he probably feels closer to 70. So, um, it's unfortunate that he that his career seemingly is going to come to an end. I think there is a chance that he coaches again, but I don't think it would be – I will say I don't think it's going to be as quick if he does go back to the sideline as a year or two later. But mm-hmm. 
we'll <clears> see. <throat> I mean, it's just uh, it's a little unfortunate. I will I will say though, Ryan Day as the head coach, I like the I like him as a, as a coach. He's the play caller this year. He's very similar to the Tom Herman factor, where he's a young assistant that Urban Meyer clearly empowers. He coached the team as a uh, interim coach when Meyer was suspended, and as the play caller. He did a great job. I mean, he made Dwayne Haskins a Heisman finalist. I know obviously Haskins had the game to do so, but he kind of helped him along the way with that. And I think given the transition feels a little stoops to Lincoln Riley, I think this could be good. They wanted to get out in front of this and say, look, this is what we're going to do. This is the guy that was here. This is the same offense we're going to run. If anything, I think the plus side of this is the Buckeyes are kind of embracing this new generation, Ryan, and then they're also – in my mind, I think what they're also doing is saying, look, we're going to be a very pass-first offense. I know JT Barrett wasn't the flashiest quarterback and kind of drove some of us Ohio State fans crazy, but we're mm-hmm. opening things up with Haskins and whoever the next guy is as well. So I'm very excited about that. Well, you know, that last thing that you mentioned, I kind of wanted to touch on because I think, you know, as great, as seemingly as great as Ryan Day is and, you know, the future projecting, his future projections as a head coach, I think that he gets a hell of a lot more help if he can get Dwayne Haskins to come back. Oh, yeah. Well, you I, know, so and, and, and that, that team is loaded. I mean, I, yeah. I, I am too, but and, and that team is loaded. I haven't really looked a ton at the draft this year, so I'm not sure. You know, I've really been looking at Trevor Lawrence this year because mm-hmm. I'm just waiting to see with him to, uh, to, uh, I mean, to exactly just how that's going to end up going. Well, but uh, right yeah. now, I don't know, you know, how how it's looking for quarterbacks. I don't know if he has a chance to go number one overall. But I know if he comes back next year and they light it up, he will go number one overall. Yeah, well, so, I, would, I would just say, it, as far as Haskins goes, this is the year to go pro for his value. This oh, totally. draft, I don't think he's going to go number one overall because it's so pass rush heavy that I think that's what you're going to see the string of. I think mm-hmm. Haskins could be the first quarterback taken. It's probably him and Drew Locke. But next year, even if he lights it up, Ryan, there's no guarantee he's number one quarterback. That's given that two is coming out, Justin Herbert, who said he's probably not going to go this year, would have been the number one quarterback, is also in the mix. So I think it's definitely tougher. But I think, look, Urban Meyer, great recruiter. If they can get the players, he's the play caller. So if he can, you know, can he get his athletes there? Urban Meyer's strategy was my athletes are better than yours. And I got guys that are going to call the plays for me. So um, that's it. I mean, half the battle is recruiting, maybe even more than half the battle if you really break it down. So if Ohio State can kind of recruit itself and he can get those guys in there, I, I think they'll still be fine. But it'll be weird without seeing Meyer on the sideline. So we'll see. It will. I will say, though, I'm going to I'm gonna try to go to his uh, retirement party out here at the Rose Bowl. I'm try to oh, nice. Okay. There, so. Yeah, you can absolutely do that. You know, only Kind of hard to believe it's only the third time they've played in that game, I think, in the last, like, 20-plus years. So Yeah, and Urban Meyer said that he's never coached in one. And yeah. I was, when he said that, I was like, oh, that's crazy. So, yeah. yeah, I guess you never think Ohio State and the Rose Bowl, and I just expect them to put a beat down on Washington. Yeah, Pac-12 has been a disaster <laughs> this year. So yeah. That's a great way to go out. But, all right, Ryan Soles, Money Mitch Effect. Before we get to the NFL, I gotta I gotta get your thoughts on this, that heavyweight title fight that we were talking about, Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder. I uh, <laughs> so much happened in that fight that didn't really start out a classic, and I, I don't even know if I want to use the word classic. Say, it was a very good, entertaining fight, but maybe not a classic. And it was ruled a draw, kind of controversial, but people are saying I could see a draw. 
mm-hmm. maybe just not you know agreeing with how it went down. What did you think of the fight itself and then ultimately the outcome? So, man, you know, you said that totally because I was thinking the exact same thing. And in terms of classic, the word you use to describe the fight, I don't know because in, I, we were texting and I said perplexing. And you've never seen, and I, I haven't watched too much of Wilder. I watched a, a, a few of his reels or whatever and, and a couple fights just leading up to this just so I could be familiar. I don't watch too much on Tyson. But this right hand on Wilder, and then to put Fury down like that, and he just gets back up. That's insane. <laughs> I, I've, I haven't seen anything like this. And to me, and this is just, we were talking about the whole, you know, going from three to five judges or whatever, because just how ridiculously subjective the system is. But I think the adjudication process it's almost impossible to score something like that because in a in a sport where something has to be on a scoring-based system, it's hard to account for someone getting knocked down because yeah. you can't translate that over to a real fight. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it, it, it's very hard to analyze that. So when they ruled it a draw, I was like, okay, if this is a real fight, Tyson Fury is probably going to win. But in a boxing match when you knock a guy down twice, like, how, how do you score that? Well, so, I mean, you, you can, on a 10-point scale, that's difficult. So, I, I just, for me, I think Tyson Fury won the fight. But it being ruled a draw and the, and the way the sport is adjudicated to me is fair. So, yeah, I hear exactly what you're saying. And I think that it being a draw isn't outrageous. Like, I was outraged when uh-huh. Rafkin lost. <laughs> yeah, was I was. That, uh, that I, yeah, that, that was robbery. You know, yeah, that and, was. And Pacquiao Bradley and Pacquiao Horn. And, you know, we can go back down down the ranks, even Lennox Lewis, uh, Evander Holyfield, going back that far. But the scoring system, here's why I think Fury was a, a pretty solid winner, is this scoring system is, if you basically knock a guy down, it's a 10-8 round. A 10-8 mm-hmm. round being... You know, you win the point by ten by you win the round by two points, ten nine for the rest of the rounds. I think if you watch that fight, and I went back and watched it twice, I think Fury won eight at a minimum rounds. Nine is what I was what I had. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so nine three would be one fifteen one eleven. Eight four would be one fourteen one twelve. And, and I can understand maybe if we disagree by a rounder. So seven five is a draw. It, it would be a yeah. wilder draw and. And uh, that would be okay. Like, I disagree, but I understand. But the judge that had it, 115-111 for Wilder, it's so crazy because you look That's at that crazy. scorecard, they had Wilder winning the four of the first five rounds. They had an interview with Floyd Mayweather at Brinkside. He's like, I have it a shutout right now. <laughs> I mean, and, and he wasn't pulling for Fury. He was just calling it like he sees it as a boxer. Right, so exactly. I, that's the part I see. And I understand that if you knock a guy down twice, the optics of it are you, you're in control. Fury was much better technically in that fight. He was outboxing him. He moves. I mean, for as kind of sloppy but, as he looks, he moves well, hold very on, well. Mitch. I, and and I, I'm not dismissing what you're saying at all, but the second time he knocked him down, and that wasn't just a knockdown. Like, oh. dude looked but, like he was cold. But how I about, mean, yeah, that was, he was a zombie. He got back up like a zombie. And even more impressive to me, Ryan, he won the rest of that round. 
Yeah, he did. <laughs> he wasn't hanging on for life. He could have got up and He became the aggressor. It was like insane. nothing ever happened. I, I got to give yeah. Perry a ton of credit because, I mean, he's went through a lot. He donated, he I think, has. all of his fight to, to the poor, all of his fight purse. He's been yeah. through a lot. He's, he's I had no idea he was 400 pounds. And, oh, yeah. you know, I, I, I didn't know that was his story. So that's, yeah. that's a one back and, from. And they may run it back. They may not because ultimately, while this was a good fight and while Wilder has that punching power and, and, and you know, did some things right, and I think this is the second and third best heavyweights, Ryan, in the world. I think Joshua would beat both of them. And I think what boxing is angling towards this summer is Fury and Joshua, two British guys at Wembley Stadium. Hmm. And that's interesting because I think a combination of any of the three fights would do well in Wembley Stadium. Yeah, but when you get and, two British guys, like two oh, guys yeah, from that, there. That's huge. Yeah. That, that's absolutely huge. And I honestly think, though, because, you know, Anthony Joshua, he has a nice jab. And I haven't watched a ton of him, but he has he's a really good technical fighter. He has a nice jab. But I think... If Wilder, if if he were to fight Wilder and Wilder could catch him, I, I I'm not sure how much Joshua outweighs him by, but I think that would be more of an interesting fight than people think. But you know, and and this has nothing to do with either of these three fighters, but this is what I really miss Andre Ward from the sport because this was just be just some prime time boxing, and the heavyweight class is on the rise. It's good to see that, and. I just think that these guys need to really just all three of them need to just generate some more talk so we can celebrate, you know, these fights twice a year because after that last Floyd Mayweather fight and this Canelo um, Golovkin series or whatever, it's going to end up being a trilogy, whatever you and I were talking what's left. And this is just good to see. Yeah. And just to answer your previous question, Joshua is an inch shorter, but has 25 pounds on him. Oof. Yeah, so. But, but yeah. hey, you know what? Fury got up. It was like The Undertaker getting up. He was dead was. and buried, and he just <laughs> he sat just right sat up. up. And, jo- and the look on, oh my God, the look on Wilder's oh, face. Oh, look, yeah. <laughs> and you could tell, and even I forget what round where he was really just going for blood, where you look like he punched himself out the first time. But when he knocked him down the second time, and you could just see the look in, in Wilder's face, like we the bell couldn't come so soon enough. Crazy, crazy. But it's fun. It's fun to have a big fight. There's nothing like <laughs> boxing, and, and obviously we like it. All right, Ryan Souls, Money Mitch Effect. We got to talk some NFL, and uh, we're gonna go around some of these divisions. But I, I got to start out by saying it was a it was two brutal years. This is the third year we've done this, where we make Super Bowl picks. Mm-hmm. And after years of picking teams like the Raiders, the Giants, the Cardinals, and the Bengals, I'm feeling pretty good about Saints Chargers, especially after what the Chargers did coming back in Pittsburgh. Yeah, you are feeling. I mean, you're you, you're doing well, and I mean, I I I think I've had a terrible year. I forget. No, I think you were I, like I think you were Saints Pats, but I think some of your division picks haven't been. Yeah, been yeah my division just yeah. I thought the Giants were going to be better. I told you Dallas scared me, and we'll get to them, I'm sure. But you know, it's been interesting, and the Saints are just man. They're rolling, and even with that loss, it's just they're scary. The Rams are scary, and you know, it's been a really good three quarters of the year and it's crazy that it's gone that quick are you ready to say that the that the chargers are at least not going to fall over their feet like if they're going to lose now they're going to lose to a team that's based on skill because it seems like they've kind of gotten the blunder side out of the way they're a good football team 
Rivers is having one of his best seasons. Keenan Allen is is great. They won that game without Melvin Gordon putting up points. And, and the defense, with that rookie Derwin James and with Joey Bosa back, they look pretty nasty too. They do. So, and you know me, Mitch. I've always been just skeptical over the years of the Chargers. And I've never hated on the Chargers. I've just, I've just always wanted to see more from the collection of talent. And I think they are definitely over some humps that in years past with talented teams, I don't think they would have gotten over even if they would have gotten on a run late in the year. What I still need to see, though, and this isn't even the team necessarily in the playoffs. I'm not sure about this coaching staff in the playoffs. When, when you go up against, if you got to play Tomlin again, you got to play Belichick, when you, you know, got to play some of these other coaches, how's Lynn going to, you know, hold up? And we've seen some question, questionable coaching stuff, you know, from him before. I think the biggest thing he's done this year is kind of turn the offense over to Phillip Rivers and just let him just let him kind of not freelance, but just it's the Phillip River system. And he does what he's best at. But when, you know, things get tight in the playoffs and you're you're competing against some of the better coaches, will will he hold you back or will he be, you know, a force multiplier, so to speak? Yeah, I think those are fair questions, but it seems like at nine and three, I mean, they're challenging now the Chiefs for that division. They have one they match up, and at the very That's least, be a great game. at the very least, they seem settled into that five seed. Pittsburgh, uh, two tough losses. They're seven, four, and one. Could easily be nine, two, and one. And Connor being injured for at least a week is gonna. We'll see how that affects that offense. But I, I look at their defense, and, and I'm still unimpressed. And Part of it's going to come to Tomlin. A lot was made by the fact that, Ryan, they their concepts on defense are awful. And I'm not just saying that because I dislike that franchise. But they had a linebacker covering Keenan Allen on multiple big plays. Like, And that that's the stuff where I've never been a huge Tomlin guy. And in his postgame press conference when he tries to call out the livelihood of his team, I would like for once somebody to grill him on the fact that, hey, Maybe those those schemes are just not going to work because there's no linebacker in the league that can guard Keenan Allen in the slot. No, I agree, and you know, and I, I'm a Tomlin fan, but I think sometimes you know we hear the term players coach or whatever, and I think when you really don't put a system and play, not even talking about non football related things, but I just think when you don't have a system, to your point. And you're moving away from what Dick LeBeau used to do. You're in your base 3-4 defense a lot, which is why you end up with a linebacker on Keenan Allen. It just doesn't make sense. And to me, maybe that just speaks to the lack of talent because they haven't drafted well really over the years defensively. Bud Dupree hasn't, you know, flashed like we thought he would. T.J. Watt has played well. Stefan Tuitt hasn't flashed like he used to. Their secondary is atrocious. So I just think that, with some personnel, they might play better. But right now, they can't rush the passer and they can't cover anyone. I think you can definitely point to some schematics. Like, I don't care what scheme you have or what talent you have. Linebacker shouldn't be covering somebody like Keenan Allen in the slot. I get that. But he's had a dearth of talent over there since the old guard of Ike Taylor and Ryan Clark and, you know, even James Harrison to a certain extent. Palomalu, those guys left. 
and left their prime. Yeah. You know, and, and Dick LeBeau, too, to a big big extent. But I think with Tomlin taking over to the defense, the talent, he's also lost a lot of talent, too, and it's turned over yeah. into an offensive team. I mean, the, they, the team goes through Ben and A.B. and Le'Veon Bell before, you know, he just didn't show up. So, you know, it, it's different. And I think, you know, I hear what you're saying about Tomlin, but – you know, I think we got to look at the full picture of really what what is the man working with besides mm-hmm. Ryan Shazier before he went out. Mm-hmm. There was no star player at either le- any level. Yeah, I mean, the good thing for them is this division is just as kind of weak as I thought it would be. I mean, mm-hmm. it's and then I'm looking at the AFC Ryan, and I'm not sure who's going to be that second wild card team because we know the Pats are just circling in. Chiefs and Chargers look like they're both good. The Texans, who we'll get to in a second, but that sixth seed. I mean, the Ravens. Total props to their defense and what they're doing, and I like Lamar Jackson, but I think it's fair all the criticism that's been coming out about how you really can't run the ball twenty times as a quarterback and expect to stay upright. And unfortunately, we saw that in that Falcons game. So I don't mm-hmm. necessarily think they're going to be there. I'll tell you. I'll tell you who I think could be that second wild card team: the Denver Broncos, because their schedule they is could. mighty easy down the stretch. You know, we don't really trust these AFC South teams. I think they could be the second wildcard team within their own division. They could get hot. I mean, they have gotten hot in, uh, you know, towards the end of the season. I just don't know. I just I don't trust the offense. I really like Philip Lindsay. He's really just played well this entire season. But when it comes down to it, I don't trust the quarterback. I like the quarterback defense combination earlier in the beginning of the year but case keenum has just not proven to be that dude niners but niners Um, raiders that's the three-game stretch coming up that is a (laughs) three-game stretch that you can i mean i don't know what help they need i don't know if they just went out they get they get the wild card i don't know what help they need but yeah i mean it's set up for them that's for sure well another team and i'll give you a minute ryan are you ready to dance on the grave of blake bortles Oh, I mean, I don't need to, man. I don't need to talk to Gary. I mean, like above it. I like it. Yeah, Blake Bortles has been dead to me, man. All right, I, it's fair, and I agree. You were right, but you saw the stats where his, you saw the info where his stats were basically the same as last year. So, oh, they are. The difference isn't. Look, he was always not a good quarterback, but they're not four and eight because Blake Bortles just got worse. He's just as bad as he was. They're four and eight because their defense last week somehow notwithstanding. <laughs> has been the difference, and, and special teams to that extent. So, I mean, you go on a seven-game losing streak, it's not just one bad position, even as bad as Bortles has played. Oh, I and, you know, and I agree with that. I think, you know, especially in the NFL, it's a it's a team effort. There's 53 guys on that roster, and the defense hasn't played well. They haven't been as disciplined, even though I think Jalen Ramsey is still, you know, having a really good season. Um, that linebacking core hasn't played as well. But I think – and maybe you can call this dancing on the grave of Blake Bortles, maybe. But when you but when you look at his stats, and yeah, they've kind of they have been the same. But the variance lies within the actual plays themselves. The down and distance, the situational football, the stupid things that he just does, like places you're not supposed to take a, st- a sack on the field. That's not going to come up in these stat sheets. No, like no, he just fair. like he just does stupid yeah. things as a quarterback. And I just think that when you have a team that, and you know, at this point, they're still the same old Jaguars with that one anomaly year, and maybe that's harsh. But history has just shown that's all we can say about them. But if they're looking to actually contend, 
when you have a defense that good and you're going to try to play, you know, football from 15 years ago and in a world with, you know, Tyreek Hill and Todd Gurley and players like that, then your quarterback, when the chances that you do have on offense, can't give it back to the defense three plays later. That's fair. It's certainly fair. And within that same division, division Ryan, are you buying the Texans as legit contenders now? I mean, nine straight games is impressive, even if the schedule opened up. But they're getting great quarterback play for the first time in forever with Watson. Hopkins is still a stud. Lamar Miller's put together maybe his best season as a pro. And we've always raved about that defense. So is it fair to say that they can contend in the AFC? So my same issue with the Texans lies with the Chargers, and that's coaching. I'm just not – I've never been sold on Bill O'Brien. I don't know what's going to happen in the playoffs, but something's going to happen, and I think he'll be culpable for some part of it. I want to give a shout-out, though, to Demarius Thomas. I think that trade has been huge for them, losing Will Fuller. He's just been a nice possession receiver. They miss his speed, uh, the, the speed of Fuller, but having just that second option to go away from Hopkins uh, has been nice. So um, I'm happy Deshaun Watson got another weapon. But I'm not 100% sold on this team quite yet. I think I'm, and I'm completely sold on the talent. I'm just not sold on the coaching. Right, and, and I, that's fair, but what we have to do, though, is understand that none of these guys are Belichick, and until we get there, we're all going to be pessimistic on how they're going to react in big moments. Mm-hmm. I think it's easier to look like a better coach when you have Deshaun Watson than Tom Savage or whoever That's so true. That. So, that's so true. Um, so, yeah. And when that defense is healthy and Watts looking yeah. like J.J. Watt. They made they made life difficult for Baker and my Browns this weekend in the first half. I mean, they get that lead, too, and that's the other thing. The Browns put up st- put up stats and were able to put up points in the second half. But when the Texans get a lead, it's they grind out possessions. Miller starts going to work, and Watson is very smart at that quarterback position, picking up the, the crucial third downs and, and not turning the ball over. So we'll see. And I just I did want to say we know what happened with the Chiefs, Kareem Hunt getting released, and we don't have to get into all the specifics of that. It was the necessary move to make. We don't think he's going to not play football again, depending on what happens. But I think Ryan, the Chiefs will still be okay. They have depth at every position, it seems like, in their in their offense. Spencer Ware is a serviceable back, and it's not going to slow down that offensive attack. I think Mahomes and Kelsey, we saw what he was able to do. Tyreek Hill, I think they're still going to put up points with Andy Reid. See, and I, I, think, I think they'll be fine, but I definitely think it's going to slow them down. I think anytime you lose a dynamic player like that, and I don't want to say lose in an injury standpoint because we know what happened, you know, defenses had to account for him. You couldn't you couldn't single him in one-on-one. You know, you had to put a receiver on him, and that declares what the coverage is. You can do that with Spencer Ware. So you're going to have to account still for Tyreek Hill and Kelsey. But Kareem Hunt was a big part of that offense, and I think they're definitely going to miss him. I think they'll definitely be able to squeak out wins when they need to get them going into the postseason. But they're definitely going to need to figure some things out, and I would expect – some things to change and we saw some things change even with this last game when they're going they're running the ball a little bit more between the tackles because that's what Spencer Word does. So that I think, you know, it's gonna it's gonna be a little adjustment. Yeah, no absolutely. I do think though that that's the position that you can plug and play maybe more mm-hmm. than anybody. And Andy Reid being so creative, I think they'll be fine there. But on the flip side, Ryan Soul's money Mitch effect, how surprised were you 
with the move mid-season, the, the Packers will finally pull the Band-Aid off and fire Mike McCarthy. So I was kind of shocked, to be honest. Uh, I knew he was going to be gone by the end of the season, but I just really don't know what's to be accomplished by doing this now. I think you give the franchise maybe a head start on looking for quarterbacks, but there's really nothing hugely to be gained except just by firing him the Monday after the season is over or before the last game. Uh, So I was a little shocked that it just came that soon, especially because you just look at the history of the Green Bay Packers and coaching, you know, we just, we don't see this often, but it was going to happen. Yeah. I think you can argue about the tactics of doing it mid season and that's fair, but we know what the coaching profession is like in in these jobs. I mean, you know, it's a results-based business. And it the is. results were awful this year. And you could see Rodgers, of all people, looked like he was either checking out or, or just, just frustrated beyond belief. So it's it's weird to see the Packers struggle so much, especially with the transcendent quarterback. But they're 0-6 on the road, and they've lost a lot of close games where you can say this seems like it could be a coaching issue. So I think anytime you're a coach for you know 13 years or whatever, that's a long amount of time, it's probably good for a fresh start. So... We'll see who Green Bay hires next year. We know Rodgers isn't getting any younger, but can still play at a high level. The rest of that division, I think that's the other side of it, Ryan, is that's a winnable division. The Vikings are 6-5-1, and one, and they're kind of a, 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 a weird team week to week where they look good sometimes and poor the next. And the Bears are 8-4, and four, which it's all right, but you know they, they've been on their backup quarterback the last two weeks. They, they try to rely on defense a little too much. I think this division is going to go right down to it and I'm still a little unsure who's going to ultimately hoist that crown well you know and I think that's you know that's two different questions I think you know just to answer what you just mentioned just who's going to host the hoist the crown I think it could be just the Bears on the fact that they're just playing overall the best football I know they took that loss that they shouldn't have taken but just top to bottom before that they were playing the best football but real quick just on Aaron Rodgers, he's definitely not getting any younger. But I think part of the reason why McCarthy's gone now is when that division wasn't so good, before Khalil Mack got there, before Kirk Cousins got there, before Zimmer got there and you know got that defense shaped up, they had ample chances to run away with division titles and go deep into the postseason, and Aaron Rodgers got one Super Bowl out of that. So, you know, that's just real quick. But I think, you know, by the end of the season, I think we're going to see the Bears as the, the champs. Yeah, it seems like it. And, um, you know, the rest of that playoff picture. With the Cowboys, the Cowboys are on fire. They beat the Saints, who it mm-hmm. was just, I think it was just a bad game. I mean, it happens in the NFL. You travel. It's not a short week because they both played the week before on Thursday. Right. Thanksgiving, but... Saints, they didn't execute on big plays, and you got to give Dallas credit in that linebacking core. Van Der Esch and Jalen Smith were all over the field. So while I don't take too much out of the Saints losing, because you know it's so hard to be perfect in this league, what the Cowboys did, Ryan, with a dominant defense, if they can play like that or close to like that, they're going to have a chance in every game, no matter what offense, whether it's the Rams or the Saints. They're going to keep themselves in these games playing defense first. And I know you hate Dallas, but... It was that throwback style of football that I know you love. Man, I can't take anything away from this Dallas defense. I mean, that, that's just the honest truth. I haven't seen 
you know, and maybe since the Legion of Boom, the prime with Bobby Wagner and KJ Wright moving as quick as they have. I haven't seen two linebackers move this fast to the football like Jalen Smith and Leighton Vander Esch. And I mean, when, when Jalen Smith came out of Notre Dame with the injury, and we talked about this. This was, I was afraid of this because if he ever got right, he was going to wreck havoc. And they got a guy who just said, okay, Sean Lee, your hamstring can't get right. We're just going to insert this kid, and he's just going to act like nothing ever happened. And these guys are young. They're on rookie deals. They're smart. They'll still fire Jason Garrett and lock up Demarcus Lawrence. (laughs) Uh, But this defense is going to be dangerous. I can't see a team in this division other than Dallas winning now. The Redskins are going through what they're going through with all those injuries. The Eagles just do not look like a good team. I mean, My team is terrible. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's just, the, the secondary is ravaged, and offensively, it's just solid. I mean, they do well against bad teams. I'll give them that. But and you know what's funny? We were joking, too. I mean, I, I talked about how Van Der Esch is one of the best defensive players in football, and I know, obviously, it's Aaron Donald's award and Khalil Mack and those guys now. But as far as rookies go, this is as deep of a class as I can remember. I mean, yeah. you're going to have your boy Derwin in in – for the Chargers, Vanderas. Derwin might have won it last night. Did, uh, what about the guy that? We're, okay, so those two, but the guy that we're not talking about, the guy that is just kind of going under the radar, Ryan, is uh, oh. Darius. I think it's Allen on the yeah Darius Leonard. Excuse me on yeah, the Colts. Darius Leonard. He Colts. leads the league in tackles, 122. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah, he's, he's a second round pick out of South Carolina State. So, um, what a what a time for defensive rookies. I mean, this is just but. Defensive player of the year, Aaron Donald, for sure. I mean, come on. Like, at this he point. Got, I, I just look, he got 16 and a half sacks, and we got four games left. He's also so, got he's also got abs, which is insane. That, yeah. Tackle. It's ridiculous, man. I just, I, it was a video, it was hard knocks or something, and it was after practice, and they were playing ping pong. Oh, yeah, I saw that. And Aaron Donald just had his shirt off, and... I said, this dude's a nose tackle. Like, this is just... He, like, spins, is, he dives in midair and can yeah, adjust. Like, it's... Yeah, it's... it's, it, it, it's I mean, he, he won the genetic lottery. That's for sure. Well, do you think the Rams are going to go undefeated here on out? Because with the Saints losing a game, the Rams hold their own destiny and can get the one seed and, and get that home field throughout, which is huge for them. But do you think they're going to get tripped up? I mean... The Eagles are coming up. I mean, <laughs> it would be your team to just randomly have their best game of the year. But I think the Rams drop one or they go 15-1. You know, I need to look again at their schedule. I think the way it sets up, if I remember, they should be okay. Well, Bears, I- this is the game. So they play the Bears this week. If they win that in Chicago, then it's Eagles at home, Cardinals on the road, Niners at home. So, yeah, these this is the game. The the Eagles could be tricky because they could they have a lot to play for, but mm. and the Saints' schedule isn't easy any, either. I mean, they got some division rivalry games too. Well, so. yeah, that's what I'm saying. It depends on what happens because the Saints got don't they have the Panthers twice? They do, but Carolina has just four straight losses, not looking good. They're uh, not looking good at all. Defensively, no, no. and Cam Cam hasn't played well. I mean, McCaffrey's been the only thing that's been reliable. Their defense has been getting gashed, and Cam threw a bunch of picks last week against Tampa Bay. You know what? You know who's scary? I, I'll, I'll admit, I, it was not all roses for me in prediction-wise. The Seahawks are scary, Ryan. 7-5. and five. Russ's best season, I think, as a pro. 
I, don't, I wouldn't want to play them in the playoffs. Not at all. And they just they have that energy about them, and it's just it seems like just on offense, it's just a bunch of little guys. They should know how to get in spots. They sit in zones. They're elusive. They're sneaky. And Russell Wilson just still doesn't get enough credit for just the pure quarterback that he is. We look at his his quick feed and just how how elusive he is out of the pocket. But this man throws darts. And he just continues to impress and always has his team on the run. And you look at this – or in the running, and you look at this roster, like, who, who's on this team? And, you know, it's Doug Baldwin, and they lose Golden Tate a few years ago, and, you know, they lose the Legion of Boom, what, it, what that used to be. And so it's just the, – the constant has been Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson, and Russell Wilson every year has gotten better. He's just going to fight every game. And, and their front mm-hmm. office hasn't really done them much favors either, but a lot well, of competitive spirit. Here's the thing. He's taken a lot less sacks last, this That's year. That's true, but, so, but the, he's set the bar for worst offensive line. So maybe they're worst, yeah. 10, worst 10 now. <laughs> <You know? laughs> okay. So it is an fair. improvement. That, that, that's, a, that's a fair point. It's an improvement, but it's still not very good. Um, yeah. So, all right, Ryan Souls, this was fun. Before I let you go. Who do you think right now? I mean, if we're looking at the division races, and we both agree that the Cowboys are going to win that one, and um, the only other, and we, and I, I do think the Bears are going to win win that division. You look at the AFC; it looks pretty standard. Who do you think the wild card teams are going to be? You know, we got a, okay. we got a little bit left, so the AFC looks like the looks like the Chargers are in, but who gets that second wild yes, card? I think the Chargers in the AFC. Um, so I'm between the Ravens. And the Colts. Ravens, the Colts. Have the, Ravens have the least points allowed in the entire NFL. So they do. That <laughs> defense is, right there. Yeah, that defense is playing really well. If they can figure out this this unique way, so to speak, of running the ball and playing defense, I can't even call it the Michael Vance, really the Tim Tebow style of offense, to be honest. Lamar Jackson's a far better passer, but the style of offense mm-hmm. is kind of the same. But before the, the Colts kind of took that shutout loss to the Jaguars, I thought they were really trending – well, and I still think there's some time for them. I was Luck's never bad, sold, but Luck's looking he, good again. <laughs> he is looking. He's, he's looking really good. I was never sold on the Titans to begin with. Yeah. And um, the Dolphins. I mean, let's just be fair. That that's, yeah. Who wants those teams in the playoffs? Because they were the worst. Ugly. It's yeah, just they been were an the, ugly game anyway. Absolutely, they, they were the worst four and zero starting team in football. So, and I mean, and I think it's just proven to be so. So, I, right now, I'm going to say Chargers Colts. Okay, I'm I'm with Broncos and Chargers because why not? Okay. Even you know, we'll see. But the NFC is even tougher because you got to pick two teams. I mean, I guess we can agree. Do you think the Seahawks are in? Because I'm I'm having a hard time not picking them as one of the wild cards. They have a game up on everybody else too. Yeah, I think they're in. I, I don't see them just starting to go on a losing. So then, so then you got to look at the Panthers, the Vikings, the Eagles, or Redskins. I mean, gosh, how do you? <laughs> Man. Yeah, that's tough. Well, here's the thing. Well, it's tough because we got Dallas on Sunday. So if the Eagles beat the Cowboys and went out, we could win the division. Yeah. But I don't think that's going to (laughs) happen. So I'm going Seahawks and... See, I don't trust the Panthers either. Yeah, I was going to go Vikings just because I feel like they can grind out a with that tie. What would that be? A, I don't trust them either, though, because they don't run a football. Right, but with that, 
nine six and one is that fair if they go yeah. three and and I think that they, might be better than anybody else can do. You know, yeah, they could, yeah, yeah. That helps in this. Cool. In this, it does case. help. Yeah, okay, I, I'm with you. I'll go Seahawks Vikings. You know, I'm with you. You know what Monday night's game is? It's Vikings at Seahawks. Is it really so okay? It's Vikings right. at Seahawks. But if if Minnesota wins this game, they go home at Dolphin. They get home versus the Dolphins at Detroit. Home against the Bears. I think I mean, those are winnable games. They are, and I mean Seahawks win, they're in for sure. I think it's going to yeah. be; they'll have such a leg up in this grind. But yeah, it'll be it'll be a, a sight to see. But Ryan, this was a blast. We'll have to do this again as we get into the postseason. But always a pleasure talking football and uh, and boxing with you. But thanks for coming on the Money Mitch Effect. Of course, man. Thanks for having me. And that's it for today's show. Big thanks again to Nina Pantic and Ryan Souls. Thanks to Brian Nelson for supplying the logo. Tim Adams for supplying the beats. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. You can find the entire catalog of the show, The Money Mitch Effect, on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. Leave a rating, review, and subscribe to any of those platforms. And thanks to everybody out there who listened to Running With The Money. We're going to still do some episodes, maybe not weekly, but we covered all of college football season. We're going to have, I think, a bowl episode next week. And then we'll get into it for the playoff talk as well. The New Year's Six Bowls there. But that was the Sports Betting Podcast with Kent Brown and Matt Gothard. They were phenomenal throughout the season there. We do Money Mitch Effect episodes every week. So make sure you follow us also on the Money Mitch Effect Facebook page. And on Twitter, me, MoneyMitchM21. Just follow it and I will be there with episode posts and sports takes and everything you need. This was the Money Mitch Effect. I am Mitch Michaels. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep enjoying sports.